Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. Today is March 16th, and this is a podcast in which we seek to go behind the question and address the real issue from a biblical standpoint. I'm Charles Roberts, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. How are you today, Andrea? Ready to talk about an important topic. Well, the question that a lot of people have is, what do I do when somebody comes up to me and begs for money? What do I do when I'm walking down the street and a homeless person or somebody who appears to be in that condition asks me for a couple of dollars? But there's another issue behind that question. The bigger issue that we want to talk about is what does God's Word have to say about charity? Are there conditions for charity? Should we just simply blindly give things away? There is a standard by which these questions can be answered, and our standard is the Word of God. So that's the question behind the question today. What exactly is charity from God's standpoint? I think that we have to first identify that it's a real issue people face. My husband, routinely, where we live, encounters people who will actually be very aggressive when you are coming out of the grocery store or any place of business or restaurant, and they appeal to people's sense of concern or people's sense of guilt. So it comes right down to it. You see this woman with a baby in her arms and two other children cowered next to her saying, need help, we're homeless. And so the first response is, wow, I should help the widow and the orphan in their distress. But then there's an awareness that a lot of times these people aren't what they seem to be. So the question really is, am I a creep if I don't help this woman? Or am I fostering a scam if I do? A lot of, in California anyway, a lot of them will line up right near an exit off the freeway where there's a traffic light and people have to be stopped. And they'll walk up and down and you see windows go down and people handing them money and there's always the God bless on their sign. And I think the reason people bring the window down, sometimes they might have other people in the car and they feel guilty or ashamed if they don't help. But I think the sense of guilt that says we should help people who need things is very present. And if you don't have a biblical way to address not so much the guilt but the responsibility, it's very easy to let emotions take over and either decide these people are frauds and I'm not going to help them and you stay firm in that or, well, this person really needs help, I think I should give them something. Well, let's, uh, let's see the scriptures have to teach us concerning this matter. Let me just throw out a few passages that speak directly to the issue of the poor. As early as the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 11, we read this from God's law, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now, that's a pretty clear statement, but there are a lot of things that it presupposes a common understanding of who exactly are the poor, what it means to open wide the hand to your brother, 
and these people who are needy and poor are in your land. So those are some important qualifying statements. Further on in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 17, God's law says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22, 9, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Now, those are just a few passages. We'll talk about others as we go through, but there's a very clear statement in God's word about caring for the poor and the needy. But the issue then becomes, who, who are they? And, of course, the complexities of society today are somewhat different than they were in the times in which these statements were made. That doesn't change the basic principles. But, you know, if you're living in a, a smaller, compressed community where uh, there is a family structure that is more or less intact, people know each other, people understand who each other are, and if so-and-so's grandson falls on hard times, well, everybody in the village or the community knows it, and they understand the reasons why. Nowadays, the scenarios we have, like uh, what you just described where you are, you know, you don't know anything about the people who are coming up asking you for money and how they got in that condition. I know a fellow, I don't know him well, but he recently moved from Southern California to Arizona. Part of that was job-related, but I heard him telling someone about one of the reasons he, he had to leave, he felt like, was that the neighborhood where he grew up, I think it's one of the largest tent cities in the state of California, is now located just across the street from the place where he grew up. So you have not only people standing on streets, but you actually have colonies of people who are in this situation. And we find the rise of these kind of things, whether it be tent cities or regular people who stand out on street corners, directly related to the breakdown of God's order for the family and for the church and the state. And many times we find the state interfering and creating a situation where people become dependent on the state for their sustenance. And when that is taken away or no longer available, then they're sort of left on their own. There's no family structure or no church structure to help them. Exactly. And you think about it, the prevailing structure, as you put it, in terms of, let's just take the civil order, where we have a welfare state. And there's lots of talks these days about you know, the immigration problem and whatever. Well, if the state was not offering free services at other people's expense, if the state stayed within its jurisdiction of justice and defense, then, first of all, freeloaders wouldn't be flocking to a place to get freebies because there wouldn't be the freebies. And I believe that the people of God, especially if they're reading their Bibles, would become familiar with how to apply the passages that you just read. But I think the trade-off that people make, and I'm talking Christian and non-Christian alike, is that we pay our taxes. These people can get help through social services or whatever. And the trade-off is, I don't have to see people begging outside my house. Well, guess what? They're not outside your house yet, but in urban areas, for sure, they're all over the place. It's not uncommon where I live, for example, to see the roundup of shopping carts and belongings at the beginning of every day that the police go around and gather up all the stuff where people are by the sides of the freeway or by the side of a, a river or a body of water. And then by the end of the day, they all get their stuff back. They're back in place. And you see this repeatedly. 
So the whole problem, not only is the welfare status solution not working, it costs more money. And in some locations, and there's a big fight in my community, they're deciding where they're going to build these houses for the homeless. And it's going to cost enormous amounts of money. And they'll only be able to house 30 people. Well, do you think building such places like the 10th city your friend talked about is going to encourage more people showing up? Or is it going to encourage people to say, you know what, I think I should go get a job and, and find a way or find a family member who's willing to help me? No, what you tax, you get less of. And what you subsidize, you get more of. And so the more you tax people, I believe the less likely they are to be aware of what their duties are under God because they assume it's already being taken care of. When I lived in Arizona, there was a story that ran in the Phoenix newspaper about a colony. Uh, I think that was the term that was used that had been established. I believe it was somewhere between Phoenix and Tucson back in the 1940s to house and help people who had horrible physical deformities and handicaps. This was a state-funded project, and there were at least one or two generations of people in that very sad condition who lived their lives in this place. The story that ran in the paper was about the fact that the land on which that facility had existed for the better part of 50 years was being sold by the state. And the people who were there, they weren't adding any new people to it. And the people who were there were either going to be transferred out or some of them would probably die before it happened. I was so gripped by this, I I actually wrote a blog piece about it called The Cruel Mercy of the State, especially in light of the fact that it became known that the state planned to sell that land for a profit for some other purpose, not related at all to helping these people. So this is another issue, another factor that comes in to the state being involved in these things. Yes, they might build a certain number of houses to house homeless until it becomes convenient for the state to make money off of it in some other fashion. And that's why in God's order of things, the family has been the first order by which these kind of problems were supposed to be addressed. I recall when I was a boy growing up here in South Carolina, I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood. I didn't know of anybody who was what I would consider poor but we certainly were far from the landed aristocracy. But occasionally we would have people coming through the neighborhood looking for work, rake your yard, cut your grass. And some of these people were just pitiful looking to use that term. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I remember as a boy being very upset, almost to the point of tears about one fellow who came to our door looking for something like that. And, uh, you know, I think we let him do something, but you know, those days are largely gone. And even in that case, you had somebody who was looking for help where, The family structure was not there to provide or a church structure to provide for this person. And you add to the current problem, this isolation from family and isolation from community, a lot of the people who are homeless, a lot of the people who are in the straits where people feel like I should help are people who are already on government subsidy They are already getting, I mean, you could see a lot of them have cell phones. So where are they getting their cell phones from? Well, obviously, they're getting them from wherever they check in. And a lot of them are drug addicts. And so when you have mental health facilities or hospitals that are overloaded, a lot of these people are just let out onto the street. I think we'd have to say 
that the reason that you could either be scammed or the reason that people who really need help are approaching you has to do with the failure of status solution. So the real question is, whose responsibility is it? Well, you've identified it's the family, but in a lot of cases, families have broken down. So I think we have to say this lands on the people of God, which we would put in the collective noun, the church. And as a pastor, let me share with you and our listeners some examples that I have been involved in over the past 20 plus years in ministry, where I've seen this work, or in some cases not work so well. As an individual, I have been approached many times in various places for help. One of the most striking, and perhaps some ways most humorous, I before I went to seminary, I worked in a downtown area of a moderately large size southeastern city. There were many churches in the downtown area that had food banks and, and food closets, and so there were a fair number of homeless who were always present in the downtown area where my office was that I worked. And one day I had gone out to get something, and I was on my way back, and I was walking out of a business where I'd made a purchase, and there was a homeless fellow standing there, very tall man, rather bloodshot eyes, and he wanted some money. And I told him, I said, look, I'm not going to give you a dime because you're just going to take it and go get drunk. And I didn't give him a chance to respond one way or the other. I just simply left. I went back to my office or headed back to my office in a roundabout way that I hadn't gone before because I didn't, I didn't really want him to follow me back there. So once I had gone behind a few blocks and buildings and come out on the main thoroughfare where I had walked, uh, I came out on the sidewalk and lo and behold, there he was across the street <laughs> and he called out to me. He said, Hey, wait a minute. And he came trotting across the street and he came up to me and he said, Mr. He said, I don't want the money for liquor. I'm hungry. Well, I said, okay, in that case, there's a hamburger place right here. Let's go in here. And I'll get you something to eat. So we went into the place and uh, it was one of those kind of places where they have the menu kind of up on the, uh, up on the wall behind the register. And we were looking up there together. I said, what would you like? And the cashier who was standing there looked at me and said, well, he usually gets a burger and fries and a milkshake. <laughs> so I said, fine, wow. here's five bucks, get him what he, what he wants. I mean, that's one way you can handle it. And then something like that happened to me more than once where people would ask for money. Uh, I would say, no, I will buy you something to eat if you would like to have it. And I never gave the money, only the food as it was needed. I think that's a good plan. Again, you have to have time to spend. So whether you keep energy bars in your car or whether you keep water available or whatever it's going to be, then you're ready to say, okay, if your need is hungry or thirsty right now, I'm ready to help you. But if you just go ahead and throw it at the person, you're just one step away from handing them the $20. And in fact, you can say, well, I'm spending less than $20 if I do this. It is an investment in the person that if it is a person who's scamming, he's not less likely to want to spend the time and effort doing it, saying it's not worth my time to come in and get a hamburger with you. But if it's a person who's really needy, instead of thinking that the only thing this person needs is food, and it might be the immediate thing, and we're supposed to help, but you can build a relationship and say, look, I, I don't have a place to put you. I, I don't think you want to come here necessarily, and I'm not in that situation, but I'll meet you here again tomorrow. Just do me a favor. Read this. Read this, and then I'd like to talk to you about it tomorrow, and then there'll be another hamburger or something like that. It would be an investment, but again, I think people would have to realize that you're not going to get the problem to go away by just throwing money at it. 
you got to give yourself as part and parcel of really giving biblical charity. And I believe that is um, part of the design that the Lord has in his law about how we are to handle these things is that we are to interact with the poor and the needy, the homeless, the down and out, because providing them biblical solutions to their problems is their way out of their situation. As somebody put it to me one time when uh, a church I was pastor was looking to be involved in uh, a mercy type ministry that did this sort of thing is our goal is to not help people in their poverty, but to help them out of their poverty. Uh, and that's a very different sort of thing. I've, I think the state tends to do more the former than the latter. Uh, you know, I, I can think of a, to give an example of a church situation that might be of interest to our listeners. I was involved in a church where we did have a, a pretty substantial food closet, a food bank. And, you know, we early on set a policy for when people would call uh, or come by asking for help. We had certain standards by which we would operate. For example, if it was someone who we had never met before, if they'd never called us before, we would give them pretty much any of the food. We would have them come in and look over the closet, you need the can of this and the box of that, no questions asked. But we made it clear to them that if they continued to come, and not in a punitive way, but just as this is how we operate, then we looked at as, look at that as you giving us permission to ask you some tough questions. That's when we would you know, get into the issue of how did you get in this situation? Uh, how, how can we work toward making it such that you don't really need to do this this kind of thing? And sometimes we had questionnaires that we would go by. And some of this came about by trial and error. Uh, there were some folks who called and asked for help, and they couldn't get out to have the food delivered. And some of our deacons went to the place where they lived, and they found, you know, three or four big dogs, a couple of satellite dishes. <laughs> you know, the next time that happened, we made it clear that maybe you aren't spending your money wisely, and this is the reason why you don't have enough money for food. And I think that's a really important point that you have then the right, so to speak, and the duty to ask those tough questions. I sat next to a woman on a plane once. And she was from the Midwest. And she told me that what her church used to do, because her husband was a pastor, is that they would help people even to the point of saying your children can come to our daycare or our preschool for single women, but you have to come to church. And you have to come to church two out of the four Sundays a month. And you have to sit through the service. And then after you sit through the service, we'll talk about how we can help you and we will help you. Well, two things are necessary there. The willingness on the part of the congregation to have people who don't necessarily look like them show up to the service. And for the pastor to actually be preaching to not just feed his flock, but to feed those who come and listen, not with, oh, please come here and join our church, but to hear what God requires of all people, regardless of their socioeconomic status. So I think if we looked in terms of the exchange, the exchange is we want you to hear a faithful rendering of the scriptures. You would like some help from us. Eventually, I think there are those people who really do want to get out of the situation they're in, and who God is calling. But if you don't have somebody willing to bear someone else's burden, if you're not willing to bear, I usually say, well, don't expect people to share. Because if somebody tells you of a need and you go, oh, I just, oh, that's hard. God bless you. I'll pray for you. The scripture says don't do that because you're not demonstrating God's genuine love. 
In a more biblically based time in our society, you not only had families who you know, took this seriously and might have a reserve of food on hand or at least had a, a biblical understanding about the need to help the poor and uh, the biblical standards for that, in addition to churches that would be prepared. You also had individuals who took this on as an important ministry. And one of the most striking that I have heard about is one that, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm hoping maybe you can help me with the details, because it was a story that R.J. Rushdoony told in one of his uh, lectures, and it had to do with an, a man, I believe the man was in San Francisco, and this was many, many years ago, and I believe he worked for the railroad, he was somebody uh, of means, and he became very concerned about the plight of wayward boys, of uh, boys who roam the streets. And he established some sort of home or school for them. I believe his name was Captain somebody or other, something like that. He may have had more than one of these facilities. And Rush talked about this, that many, many of these young men went through this man's charitable system of housing these boys. It was sort of like an orphanage, I guess, providing for them, giving them an education. Whenever the boys would graduate through this particular system, the captain would, would show up for these uh, occasions and either give them a silver dollar or some sort of token of their success in getting through this program and, and getting out into society as productive members uh, and, and having had this sort of solid biblical training. Rush either mentioned when he was a boy, his father or himself later on had actually run into one of these fellows uh, fairly recently from the time when he told it. He asked, are you one of these guys? Yes, I'm, I'm one of the boys or something like that. So here was an individual of some means who took it upon himself because he took this injunction seriously to care for the poor and not just simply throw money at it, but to put his own time and effort into it. And he kept up with it, and uh, it provided a great benefit to people uh, of, of those communities where these boys were able to get food, get training, and not just simply be given food and go out and do whatever else you want to do. But there were other things like this in San Francisco, as it was. There was a woman back in, I believe it was the 1800s, who would actually meet Chinese who were coming here to work. And a lot of the women were being sold into prostitution. And her name was Donaldina Cameron. And what she did is that she took these women and she actually taught them skills so they wouldn't have to have that kind of life. And I think this is, goes into the important for volunteerism. When we assume that somebody else who's getting paid is going to take care of things for us, well, if you've ever experienced how pleasant it is to work in a bureaucracy, you'll realize that they're not very efficient. So leaving charity to a bureaucracy is not a very efficient way to do anything, let alone it's not a biblical way. Think of all the women who have raised families, who have real experience. Instead of, well, we have to go to work, I have to find purpose in my life, the purpose would be the volunteers in the society, the volunteers who would see a need. I might have the opportunity, because I don't have schedules to meet with my children, let's say I'm not homeschooling anybody anymore, where I can offer my time to help a single mom whose children are struggling in school. It's not going to make the six o'clock news. No one's going to care that Andrea Schwartz is tutoring a little boy who is struggling in school. But God knows, and that's part of the storing up treasures in heaven. So if the people of God 
stopped waiting for church programs to be formulated and started doing what you said in terms of having extra meals around or having a certain amount of money and you're going to engage people who are begging and actually have someone to talk with and establish a relationship, then I think we're going to see a lot of things turn around, not so much because, oh, it'll get a lot of publicity, but God will bless the efforts and there'll be other people who say, tell me what you're doing. Did it cost a lot? What did you have to invest? Was it life-threatening you to do it? It's like, no. Fast food places, there are lots of people at fast food places. I don't have to worry about someone coming back and robbing my house because I'm not meeting them in their house. I'm meeting them where they're asking for help. And because of the progression in modern society of the state becoming more and more involved in these things, it's going to take creative ways and challenging um, the pretended authority of the state in these areas because I know there are places that I've lived where laws have been passed by local ordinance that you couldn't serve food publicly without some kind of health permit. And it reminds me of a story that I read many years ago, a biography of a person who I have always found very fascinating, the famous female pastor and preacher, Amy Simple McPherson, a woman of some notoriety, but before her notoriety, She had an incredible ministry in Los Angeles and, of course, established the big Pentecostal church, the Angelus Temple. But what a lot of people don't know about that work is that the Angelus Temple, at its height in the 1920s or 30s, I believe, had a soup kitchen food ministry that fed thousands and thousands of people on a regular basis. And even then, uh, immigrants from other countries, there was one of the few places they could go without any concern about being harassed or whatever by other people and and get a a warm meal. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing like it from, if I remember what was being said in the biography, in Los Angeles at that time. Typically, and not surprisingly, one of the reasons that it eventually went by the wayside was because of city ordinance. The city came in and said, you can't do this or you can't do that. Although at the time, I I think this was at a time when many civic uh, or civil areas like a big major city they didn't really have any kind of programs like that. We, this is, again, the early 20th century. And so there was still that structure where churches and families realized the responsibility. So we can look back on some of these things and learn, but we also have to realize that we've gone far from that time now where the state has taken over or assumed to itself a lot of these kinds of areas of ministry. And so there is that challenge that we have to face. And in the meantime... Until such time as we recapture the church looking at its responsibilities, you can avoid a lot of permits for this or permits for that by making use of certain facilities. So for over a year, I tutored a little boy at the public library. Public library is open. My tax dollars pay for it. And I brought him through a phonics program. And it didn't cost me anything. It didn't cost, I mean, I, I did manage to have the family give me a little bit of money, $5 every time they showed up. And then at the end, what I did is I bought him a Bible story book that he could actually read. So I had my motives. My motives were, as I was teaching, as I was helping him, he got to hear my views on the world. His mother got to hear my views on the world and, and what God says and tying things into that. So this little boy learned a lot of Old Testament stories that he had never heard before. He was very fascinated by them. 
story is about Joseph, the story is about Samson, the story is about the Exodus. These are interesting to children if they only but hear it, right? So it didn't take much. Use fast food establishments as the place where you'll meet people. Why, why not? They, they're open for business as long as you're spending some of your money. And so we can have family ministry, which really is church ministry, if you say this is what the people of God do. Too many people think church ministry is that the elder board or the deacon board has to approve this program. We have to put somebody in charge. We have to have a whole series of things. No, individuals can do it. You can have a, a nursing home ministry by going in and spending time with elderly people in a nursing home. You don't need an official program. You just need to have the willingness, spend the time, and spend the effort. And this is fully in keeping with what the Lord designed for us as his people in terms of interacting with people in these situations. You mentioned earlier just throwing money at programs and thinking our responsibility is thereby taken care of when actually it isn't because it's not simply providing for the material need of someone in these circumstances, but the Lord designs for us to be right there with them so that they can benefit from and that we can benefit from the interaction, just as you gave the example of tutoring the boy at the library. Well, I mean, if you just gave money to some program to do that, well, that boy probably would not be getting any interaction whatsoever from someone who reads the Bible and follows the, the way of Christ. And who prays for him regularly. Yes. If we're going to really be biblically applying these things, we have to say, if we are to treat others, the way we wish to be treated. If we're to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, then it isn't too much of a stretch to picture yourself. What would you do if you were hungry? Who would you call? Who would you ask for help if it turned out you couldn't pay your rent? And if someone says, I don't know who I would call, then there's a real evidence of the fact that community is an important thing. If for no other reason, People should want to be welcoming people who have real needs into Christian communities, not so much to say, okay, we have a handout so we can feel really good about ourselves, but that we become the city on the hill where people say, oh, this is where you actually go for help. And then the people who've been helped, they turn around and they give their time and effort to helping others who were like them in their situation. Again, this is the major factor in God's plan and program for dealing with people in these kind of circumstances. If I can uh, cite another example of a church I was involved in some years ago where we had a gentleman who came uh, to be part of our fellowship, and he came in very bad shape financially and emotionally. He had at one time been very well off, but through a series of mishaps that I won't go into, he basically had become dependent on disability, social security, and he was on a number of different types of medications for emotional problems. He could not pay all of his bills, and so the church graciously stepped up to pay a number of these things. But then it became obvious that a lot of the problem, he, he was an otherwise able-bodied man, but it became obvious that a lot of the challenges he was facing was because of his dependency on the medications that he had been put on by state-supported doctors and, and people who had be, he had been assigned under the circumstances. And so we located a ministry that would help him 
get off of these things. So we talked with him and said, look, we want to pay for you to go to this place and get off these medications so that you can start living a productive life. You know, you can't possibly be happy in this way. You've even said as much. So we would like to do this for you so that you don't have to continue to ask for us to pay your rent or pay this bill or pay that bill. Well, he fairly quickly turned down that offer for a number of different reasons that we offered to take care of those reasons too. At that point, it then becomes an issue of the person having to deal with the consequences of their actions. And so this too is is another side to this that perhaps we, we should at least mention is that one of the things that has to happen is that people need to be aware that there is God's mercy available to them, but when it's offered and they refuse to take it, even after a deal, a good deal of forbearance and, and patient working with the people, then at some point, then they must deal with the consequences of their actions. And this is where understanding biblical law is so vital and why it's so dangerous and debilitating for the people of God to not read the Older Testament. Because in that body of stated law and case law, you have the way in which people are to interact with each other in community. So when we talk about the tithe, people are very familiar with the need to tithe. But they don't understand that there were not more than one tithe. There was the what was called the Levitical tithe, which was basically your social financing, health, education, and welfare. So it wasn't a jurisdiction of the state. It was a jurisdiction of the community of believers. And then there was a rejoicing tithe, which we won't go into right now, but there was the poor tithe. And the poor tithe was given every third and six years of a seven-year Sabbath cycle. And it was meant to be personal. The people who needed help were to meet with and go face-to-face with the persons who were going to render help. And this help that they were going to render was a percentage of what it is they had. So it was based on you tithing to the Lord, but in this capacity, not everybody has to give the same amount of money. And so Joe receives help from Bill, and Bill stays in touch with Joe, and maybe not only invests with the financial help, but says, you know, you really are a capable person. I bet you with a little bit of training, you could learn how to be a gardener, or you could learn how to do whatever it is you had to do. So that the next time of the cycle, the sixth year, this person doesn't need help anymore. He's now among the people who are helping other people. So it's just what you talked about in terms of wouldn't you rather be someone who helps than someone who needs help? And the scripture says over and over again, if you won't work, you shouldn't eat. People who can't work, someone who is actually injured or handicapped or whatever, is a person who would be worthy of help. But even then, that person would want to be integrated into the community on what that person could do. The Bible never says you get help and you sit home and you watch television all day because you can't do anything else. There's plenty of things people can do. But if they don't look at their own responsibility along with their need, then, like you said, there comes a point where you say, this is no longer biblical help. We're subsidizing laziness or slothfulness. And this is the problem when the state becomes involved in these issues 
it tends to perpetuate that very thing. When charity and helping the needy and the poor were a family or a faith community-based issue, then that meant that people were generally familiar with the individuals involved and would have a pretty clear understanding of how they got in that situation, their worthiness of it, if there was some question about the genuine need, what could be done to address that side of the problem. But with state involvement, there comes an anonymity with the people involved, and it tends to perpetuate the professional beggar or the person who is always relying on the state. And as I mentioned with that example from the the hospital in Arizona, the state's mercy is cruel. Uh, at a certain point, it, it will redound to no one's benefit except itself, and that it does not have the, the best interest of humanity at heart, as God's law word does. I think that in our discussion, you know, we have established that it is vital for us as followers of Jesus to be concerned about the poor. I would just add, I realize we're running short on time, but we should also mention specifically the issue of widows and orphans. And I know uh, you may want to refer to our folks, an article that you wrote in Faith for All of Life on the specific issue of widows. Yes, helping modern-day widows in their distress. This is another area where uh, there is a tremendous need, need for ministry. So we hope that our listeners have gained some insight on the issue of what do I do when someone comes up and asks for money or for food or for help. It is something that we are indeed to be involved in, but the boundaries, the issues are clearly defined for us in God's Word, and our familiarity with that and our taking that to heart is what will help us to be a blessing to others in those situations. And if I might add, if you find, after hearing all this, there are still times where you feel guilty or troubled and you say, do I have a responsibility? I really encourage you within the context of your life, within the context of the time you have available, that you're maybe putting to something else that really isn't very profitable and isn't very fruitful for the kingdom of God, to find your niche on what you can do. It might be You've got Saturday mornings, and you can decide to put your Saturday mornings to actually devising a way to help the kind of people you want to help. I mean, the people with genuine needs and the people who really need to hear the gospel. I'm not really suggesting, and I know you're not either, a one-size-fit-all. You have to go ahead and start a soup kitchen, or you have to go and bring people to the fast food place or whatever. The goal is to take a stab at the problem on a foundational level, but not say, oh, well, it'll be years before I have this in place. I don't have to deal with it. Sometimes you have to put the finger in the dike so that the water doesn't flow out while you're building the infrastructure. And the more we share what we actually are doing, it's very much in line with Jesus's words to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and these would be definitely good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. So as a point of example, when the woman who was, whose boy I was helping asked me, why do you do this? Why do you come twice a week to do this? It was a great opportunity to say, because my Lord Jesus Christ commands it. And suddenly I had a very willing participant in terms of, can you tell me more about that? 
Yes, and that uh, it, it leads very directly into a topic that we hope to address in a future podcast, and that's the issue of evangelism and how we can bear witness to the message of the kingdom in very practical and uh, effective ways, and that certainly is one of them. But in wrapping up our podcast today, are there any resources that you would like to recommend, Andrea, to our, our listeners? Well, most definitely there's a book entitled In His Service, The Christian Calling to Charity. And it's by R.J. Rush Juni, and it's available at calcedon.edu or on Amazon. But let me say this, what's so interesting about this book. Number one, long before, I think there are four or five chapters before he even gets to the subject that we would think is in this book about charity, where he lays the foundation of kind of what you were alluding to at the beginning. How does God's word to this whole area from a foundational level. And then he highlights in it William Booth and the Salvation Army and the model that William Booth had in terms of helping those people that society was ready to sort of throw away or ignore. And I think anybody who finds themselves stirred up in terms of, I really do want to do something along these lines, it's an excellent book to get started. And then once you have gone through it, Chalcedon actually has a discussion that took place as a number of people who read this book and then they discussed it. So it's, you'll get some feedback from people in terms of things they actually were doing or had ideas to do. So I highly recommend that book. As I do as well. And also that very story, the, uh, the quote in the story about William Booth is one of the most gripping and uh, remarkable parts of the book. The whole thing is well worth reading, uh, lots of very solid information, and the foundation, as you said, that he lays is very, very important. And one of the things that comes out of that book is that uh, the, the early ministry of the church in the Roman Empire was a diaconal ministry, and that is the ministry that most effectively spread the message of Jesus, much more so than professional apologists or theologians getting into debates and writing lengthy articles about things. The, the thing that won the hearts of the average citizen or resident or slave in the ancient Roman Empire was that there was simply no one else doing what the followers of Jesus were doing in terms of charity, in terms of ministry. And before you know it, the Roman Empire was a Christian empire. Whatever its faults, they didn't become Buddhist or Hindu or Islamic or Jewish. They became Christian, and that was the foundation that was laid for it can find it at calcedon.edu in the store. Anything else you'd like to share with our uh, listeners, Andrea? I'm sure there are people who have questions and application questions and say, I'd like to talk to somebody about this. That's where our dedicated email out of the question podcast at gmail.com will be useful. I'm more than willing to talk to anybody who says, here's my situation, what would you suggest would be something that I could do? And with a very short interview where, you know, I just talk to somebody and find out, oh, you're already involved with this, a lot of times ideas come just by a discussion. Excellent. We would encourage our listeners to make use of that address for that and any other communications, uh, topic suggestions, comments, questions. We look forward to hearing from you. And so until our next podcast, we look forward to talking to you all again, and we thank you for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.